Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your mercies to us. Everything we have is a gift from you, and we acknowledge that and thank you for it. And we especially, this morning, thank you for your word. And as we look at it together and study it, I pray that you'd open our eyes, help us to understand and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, so today we are, we're going through... um, Guess I can move over here. The second part of the book of Acts. For those of you who are new with us, and we've come today to Acts 17, and we are um, covering really big chunks, like chapters at a time, usually throughout the, this course. There's one week when I'm going to be covering three chapters at a time, so that'll be fun. I'll probably just read it and say, okay, time's up. Um, <clears throat> So, today we come to Acts 17. Acts 17, where'd my slides go? Oh, there they are. Acts 17 really divides into three sections, and they're geographical, really. So you've got three places. Uh, You've got Thessalonica, Berea, and then finally Athens, and Athens is the largest section, so we're going to try to get there and deal with that. But each one of these three is in Acts 17, and if you remember the map, this is uh, Paul's second missionary journey. So he had gone on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and Mark. Mark left uh, about halfway through. They go back to Jerusalem. There's a a fight, or go back to Antioch. A fight stirs up about the relationship between Gentile converts and the ceremonial law. Remember that? That's Acts 15. And then in Acts 16, they start the second journey. And so that was last week or two weeks ago. And they, he passes through up here, uh, picks up Luke in Troas, Timothy he picked up back here in Iconium or Lystra and Derby, I think it was. Goes to Troas, picks up Luke, goes over to um, Macedonia. So we think of Macedonia here as Europe. And so goes over here, preaches in Philippi, uh, gets thrown in jail, gets beaten, thrown in jail, and then released. Remember, that was all Acts 16. So now he moves on. He and his company, Silas and Timothy, and they move over to Thessalonica. There's, There's the name Thessalonica, and there's a line drawn to that little dot right there. So that's Thessalonica. And then they move on to Berea and then come all the way down here to Athens, okay? So those three places. So instead of uh, reading it all for time's sake, we're gonna read it bit by bit as we go through, just like I did last time. All right, everyone see what's going on here? So Acts 17, let's read uh, verses one to nine. This is the first section in Thessalonica. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And remember, so you ask the question, why didn't they stop in those two cities there? Well, probably in light of the way the sentence is written is because there was not a synagogue of the Jews there. And even though in Acts 13, Paul said, I'm turning away and I'm, I'm turning away from the Jews and I'm now turning to the Gentiles, even though he, he did that, he still ends up going to the Jewish synagogues wherever he finds them and starting there. Because why, why do you think that is, by the way? 
before we move on. Why is he starting, why does he always go to the synagogue first? Because they have, these are people who, are, who have a background, obviously, these are God's people, these are the Jews, the old covenant people of God, right? And they have uh, the scriptures, right? The prophets, we'll see how that works out here in, in, these, in this chapter. Who else is gonna be there? Let's keep reading and see. Yeah, God-fearing Greeks. So when they traveled to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Christ whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So he comes to Thessalonica, okay, here's a synagogue, and he spends three weeks there, three Sabbaths, right, three Saturdays, and he is teaching them over the course of three Saturdays, and they keep letting him, obviously, they don't run him out yet, he's there, he speaks, then he has a week, we don't know what he's doing in the week, I'm assuming he's still talking to people, he's also probably doing his trade, which is making tents to support himself, right? So he's, he's engaged with the people. And then it says, according to his custom, went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. All right, what scriptures are we talking about here? And of course, the Old Testament scriptures, right? Not the New Testament, not the Gospels, but the Old Testament. So he's reasoning with these Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue from the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence from what? From the Old Testament, right? That the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who, am I, who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So there are two parts to, to his argument. Uh, number one, it's the the showing that what, what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah, right? Well, it says that he had to, the Messiah had to, the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That's all over the Old Testament, evidently. And that's what Jesus himself says in Luke 24, where he, here, I got to read this to you. I didn't have it, uh, uh, I didn't think I was going to read this to you, but I will. So Luke 24, after the resurrection, and Jesus is traveling and, and uh, shows up with some guys on this road to um, Emmaus. They don't recognize him. And um, he says, why are you so sad? And they say, Cause didn't, haven't you heard? You know, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah and he was crucified. And here's what he says. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to what? To suffer, to suffer, and to enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
And then you go to verse 44. This is another occasion afterwards where he's with all the disciples together. And he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, all of the Old Testament, that's just the way the Jews divided up the Old Testament. Okay, that's, he's saying the whole Old Testament. All, everything written about me in, in the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. All right? That's what the Old Testament says. That's what it, that's what, that, that's what it teaches. And so when Paul comes into the synagogue, he's got this perfect you know, foundation of, of teaching to go from. He's got their scriptures. And what Jesus said those scriptures are about is him. And namely, right, his suffering and his resurrection. That's exactly what Jesus said, right? That's the summary of it. He didn't just keep saying that over and over again. That's the summary of the whole teaching that he was teaching to them. So number one, he's proving from the Old Testament scriptures that's what the Messiah has to be. That's what the Messiah will be. That's what the Old Testament says he will do, suffer and rise again. And then secondly, what else do you have to prove? You can prove that's what the Messiah will be, but then, you have to, then he has to do what? That Jesus is him. Right? This man, this Jesus. And again, we're so used to the name Jesus. Jesus was a common name. Right? This Joe... This Joe, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, okay? That's how they would have heard that. This, this man, this regular man, this man, whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now, interesting, um, look at what he's doing. He's, he's arguing from the scriptures. He's reasoning from the scriptures. I want to read to you from uh, a commentary here from Calvin. He says, Luke says that he argued from the scriptures. Therefore, proofs of the faith are only to be sought from the mouth of God. If there's a discussion about human affairs, then human reasons may have their place. But in the teaching of the faith, the authority of God alone ought to be sovereign and we ought to be dependent on it. He's arguing from the scriptures. That's his point. He's proving to them from their scriptures. He says, uh, let us for our part realize that as faith can be founded nowhere else than on the word of the Lord, so in all controversies we must take our stand only on its evidence. Okay? So that's what he's arguing from. The scriptures, he's reasoning with them. Reasoning involves dialogue and argument. Right? Conversation, he's reasoning with them. From the scriptures, though. Right? Not from science, you know, he's reasoning from the scriptures. Yes. In the synagogue. Yes. We'll get there. That's later. It's in Athens. We'll get there. Yeah. So yes, he's starting with he's starting with people who know the scriptures. Yeah. Now look at what happens. What are the results of this? Okay. And some of them, some of who? 
some of the Jews, notice the word some, um, were persuaded. So there's an argument, a reasoning, and they're persuaded from the scriptures. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks would have been Again, these are the, the Greeks, the, the Gentiles who are, who are kind of attached to the synagogue, right? They're, they've given up, they've, they've abandoned their paganism and they're attracted to the, the God of the scriptures, the true God, right? And they're, 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 they're there, they're able to hear. But look at, it, look at the difference, right? Some, um, some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the leading women. Leading women would have been the, probably the wives. You see this term comes up several times in Acts. The wives of the leading men. That's why they're the leading women. These are Greeks, these are Gentiles, okay? Now we're gonna see this over and over again, that the gospel has much wider acceptance not among the Jews, but among the Gentiles, okay? Now, here's why. Let's keep reading. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren some brethren before the city's author- city authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, there's that word again. Um, that's often ascribed to the Jews in the book of Acts and and elsewhere in the New Testament, right? The word jealous. The Jews, so here here you've got Paul and Silas, they're teaching for three weeks. Some of the Jews, a large number of the the God-fearing Greeks, some even of the important women, right, are listening to them and, and being persuaded by the argument. And these Jewish he just says the Jews, these other Jews look at that and they say, and, and, and their, their emotion, their reaction to that is jealousy. You see that? Jealousy. Over and over again. This is what uh, Luke and the New Testament say is the response of the Jews when they see the preaching of the Christians and the apostles being accepted and believed. Not rejoicing, not this is great, you know, no, wait a minute. We're losing our power base, you know? There's jealousy. That's how you explain jealousy. They're list- not listening to us anymore. They're listening to these guys. Envious, envy and jealousy are close, but not quite the same. Jealousy has, more, how would I say this? Is, does your translation, translation say envious? So very similar, yeah. So, now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, okay? 
Um, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this because this is a, I think this is the last time the word jealous is used in, in uh, applied to the Jews here in Acts, and we haven't really talked about this at length, so I want to talk about this for a moment. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. Okay, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, later in Romans 10, he explains this. He says uh, in verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. He's talking, this is Deuteronomy, we're gonna read that in a second. This is talking about the Jews. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. In other words, Gentiles, right? By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah was very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is what you see playing out in the book of Acts. This is what God said would happen. Okay? This is not an accident. This is what God said would happen. This goes back, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. They made him jealous with strange gods. So, you see this? The Jews by worshiping idols, by turning away from the one true and living God, Yahweh, make him jealous. So the jealousy goes both directions. But first, they made him jealous. And jealousy is not always a bad thing, and it's often a good thing, all right? When a husband is jealous of his wife because she is um, interacting with a man in a way that she shouldn't, that's a good thing. When God is jealous of his people when they are worshiping false gods, that's a good, that's a righteous thing. So this is a righteous jealousy, right? They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation. That's a term that Jesus always often uses in the Gospels about the, the Jews of his day, a perverse generation. Sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. You see this? So you turn away from me to worship false gods. I'm going to turn away from you and turn to these pagans, right? These dogs, these dirty Gentiles. Us. Most of us. Right? You see, you see this is, God said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the, of the mountains. Now, Paul comes back to this in Romans 11. Look at this. I keep saying this is the, the plan. This is the plan. This is God's, this is not an accident. This is not God saying, oh no, now what am I, what am I going to do? The Jews are turning away. I guess I better go to the Gentiles, okay? This was the plan of God from the beginning. Remember what God says to Abraham. 
In you, all the families of the, of the earth, all the nations, all the tongues will be blessed. That's the plan. How's that gonna happen? Well, here it is. Romans 11, what then, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This is talking about the Jews who are rejecting their Messiah, right? And he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? The Jews, may it never be. I'm a Jew, not me, the Apostle Paul, right? But look at this. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Right? By their transgression, by the fact that they turned away, this is the part of the plan, this is not an accident, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them jealous. There it is. To make them jealous. To make the Jews jealous. Now, That's what God said he was gonna do in Deuteronomy. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, because the gospel turns from the Jews to the Gentiles, riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much as then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry to Gentiles, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So the jealousy here, is intentional by God, that's what he said, I'm gonna move you to jealousy so that you'll turn back to me. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now we don't have time to get into all of that. That's a passage that I believe teaches that there is coming a a day yet, and even in our future, because it hasn't happened yet, where he ends up saying later in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. All right. And this is kind of the mechanism of that. He's explaining what that looks like. The gospel goes to the Gentiles, the Jews get jealous, they end up coming back. That's yet to happen. But it's part of the plan. So every time this happens in the, in the book of Acts with you know, the gospel, the, the Jews hear it, they see the Gentiles respond, they get jealous. Well, no wonder, That's, this is what God said would happen. And this is what the apostle Paul says he does on purpose, right? If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. You see how that works? The, the Gentiles know God. The Gentiles have the blessings of the Messiah and here we are without it. There's a, a play on this jealousy thing where that becomes a positive motivating factor where they, they seek the Lord. They will do that yet. Don't have time to talk about it. That's, that's another class. So what happened? Well, these men, oh, where are we? Oh, gotta go backwards here, sorry. So they get jealous, 
They take, they find some wicked man who are just men who are just loiterers in the marketplace. They're good for nothing loiterers. That's kind of the idea here. And they they take them. They form a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the people. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, "These men who have upset the world have come here also." Now, hold on a second. Who formed the mob? Where did the uproar come from? <laughs> the Jews who riled up wicked men from the, from the marketplace. That's where the mob came from. And what do they say? Oh, these wicked, these, these men, right, who have upset the world. In other words, that actually is a false accusation. There's one sense in which it's true. Yeah, they upset the world, but not by forming mobs. They're the ones who formed the mobs, right? It's like the arsonist, you know, the arsonist who set the fire, complaining about the, the noise of the fire trucks. <laughs> These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Is that true? Is there another king, Jesus? Yes. Are they acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar? Well, it depends on which ones you're talking about. They're not going to say Caesar is Lord. They're not going to worship Caesar, yeah. So that's kind of a charge that can stick because it's actually true. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the Caesar of Caesars. And so they stirred up the crowd, the whole city's authorities, and they got a promise from Jason. I'm not sure what the promise is. Maybe that he won't form mobs, but of course he never did in the first place. And then they released them. All right, now what happens next? Nope, got to get past Romans and Deuteronomy and back there. So, and then you move into Berea, part two, verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why? Because it's getting, getting hot in Thessalonica, right? So they, they get them out of there. There's nothing wrong with that. When you have the opportunity to run, run, okay? You don't have to stay around and get killed if you don't have to. And so they send them away. They go by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into a synagogue of the Jews. Of course. Now these, notice the, the um, pronouns here. These were mo- more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. These Jews, that they're in the synagogue in Berea, these Jews are more no- noble-minded than those Jews in Thessalonica. Why? Well, be- for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. All right, so instead of getting jealous, instead of rejecting this, more Jews in the synagogue in Berea say, oh, let me look at the Bible. Let me look, show me from the Old Testament. Let me see, let me hear this. And they, they dig in and they, they, they check to see whether what the Apostle Paul is saying is true or not. What is the standard that they're going to? to know whether these things are true. The scriptures, that's the criteria, the criterion, right? And they're doing it daily, which shows that Paul's talking to them daily, not just on Saturday, not just on the Sabbath. What's the result of that? Well, therefore, 
because they are examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so, therefore many of them believed, many of them, not just some of them, but many, right? Along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So this seems a little different from Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it's mainly Gentiles who are believing. Here it looks like it's mainly Jews because they're, they're, they're believing their scriptures and they're digging into them and hearing the message from Paul. Remember what, um, so, the, so the standard is scripture. When Paul says in Galatians, at the very beginning of Galatians, if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel different than the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. Even if we, he says, or an angel from heaven comes and, and teaches you a different gospel than the one we already preached to you, let him be accursed. This is the, he's saying the standard is scripture. The standard is scripture. Even if I start telling you something different than I told you before, I am to be accursed. I'm not allowed to, to mess with scripture. The scriptures are the standard. It's an objective norm, okay? Does that make sense? So this is, this is why he says these, these are more noble-minded. They're going back to the, the norm. They're going back to the standard. They're looking at it. Is what the Apostle Paul says match up with the scriptures? That's the authority. And if the answer is yes, then the Apostle Paul is right. Okay? And that's a, that's a noble-minded thing to go back to the scriptures and find out if whatever the, whoever's teaching you, does it match what the scripture says? Not does it match what grandma said, not does it match what that old pastor I had one day back, you know, or does it match what I say? What, what matters is, does it match the scriptures? All right. So, therefore, a number of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But, here we go again. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also. So this is the next town over, right? They heard he's in Berea and he's being successful. People are believing him. When they heard, those Thessalonian Jews, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea and Silas and Timothy remained there. So Silas and Timothy remain in Berea they get Paul out of there. He had, remember, think about how frail Paul must be at this point. He had already been stoned and left for dead. He just got beat, beaten in Philippi. Days, maybe, maybe weeks prior to this. You know? So they keep trying to get Paul away from danger. We're going to send him down and get him out of here. Silas and Timothy remain. And so where does Paul go? Here we go. This is the last part. So he's, Thessalonica is here. They go to Berea. And Paul gets down to the sea, just right down to the coast right there. And he's going to end up getting on a boat and traveling all the way down here to Athens. Verse 11. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And that's a, it's a little bit of a, of a jaunt, you know, all the way down the peninsula there, down to Athens. 
And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul goes on alone, which is not the norm for Paul. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews. There he is again. There's a synagogue in Athens and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. It's probably what he does all the time. Synagogue on Saturday and the marketplace every other day of the week. That's why he's able to talk to them, where he's able to talk to them with whoever happens to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he comes to the city of Athens and the city of Athens is full of idols. And what's his response to that? He says his spirit is provoked, right? He's, he sees, this seems to be something even worse than he's seen ever before. He's been in a lot of bad places. Remember the one town, they worshiped him as if he were Zeus. Remember this? Remember that one? And now, but, but this is different. This is even worse than that. He is, he sees the whole city full of idolatry and his spirit, it says, is provoked. What does provoked mean? When, when someone says I'm provoked, what, what's the context of that? Typically provoked to what? Anger. Yeah. Anger that leads to action, in Paul's case, because what does he do? He preaches. He keeps preaching. Wherever, he, wherever there are people, he's preaching. Not just in the synagogue, but also in the marketplace, right? The town square, the farmer's market, <laughs> you know? Um, we live in a city filled with idols. But we've become immune, callous, uh, whatever word, jaded. What is Athens? What is Athens? What do we know about Athens? It was the intellectual center of the ancient world. The mother of culture, the mother of learning, the seat of wisdom, right? And, and the academy, the philosophers, the arts, literature. It was a seat of all of that, and yet it surpassed all the other cities in its blindness. You see? In its blindness. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking about Athens. <laughs> I'm not sure that Bloomington is the seat of all culture. I don't know that I'd say that. We'd like to think it is. All right. The dark, the, the more. Okay. I'm going to read Calvin again, okay? And there is no doubt that God allowed the Athenians to fall into extreme folly so that they might be a warning to all generations that all the acuteness of the human mind aided by learning and teaching is nothing but foolishness when it comes to the kingdom of God. 
Yeah, we're, we're talking about Bloomington as a tiny little picture of what, of what this is. Because, listen, the culture, <laughs> you know, we're not talking about great learning when we're talking about Bloomington. We're talking about the Kinsey Institute, for crying out loud. All right. Anyway, Athens, the God humbles, um, the, the, you know, the, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Yes. Philosophy is a great temptation. It asks the right questions. It has none of the right answers. At least worldly philosophy does not. So what happens? They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, we hear of Mars Hill. That's the, that's the location in the city of Athens. It's the place where the philosophers would hang out and talk. Okay? And teach, yeah. Uh, so they bring him there, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Then you have this little parenthetical statement that explains the nature of their interest. Okay, the nature of their interest is not, here's a man who's teaching us the truth of God, and we want to know the scriptures, and we want to know them. No, what's the... Here it is. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Oh, well, this is new. Let's hear it. You know? Sound familiar? And this is us, isn't it? And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That word religious is a kind of word that is ambiguous. It can mean a good thing or it can mean a bad thing. It can mean, I mean, even the word religious can, mean a good, can be, have a good connotation or a bad connotation, right? And the same thing is true of this word. It can, it can, it can mean superstitious. And when you say someone's superstitious, you're not giving them a compliment, right? So it can kind of be taken in both ways. You're very religious. <laughs> I observe you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, even that, the objects, the objects, you're worshiping objects, right? I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now there's all kinds of you can read all kinds of things about what people say about the unknown God thing and whether they're just kind of trying to keep all their bases covered just in case or whether there was some event that actually, you know. Therefore, what, what you worship in, what? Ignorance. Now, where is he? <laughs> He's in Athens. What you worship in ignorance. Uh, I'm here to tell you, a university... You know, Bloomington, Indiana, you're ignorant. Is that, is that a nice thing to say? I mean, it's the truth. But he's, Acts 17 is always held up as this wonderful example for us of how to soften the message in such a way that, that unbelievers will hear it, okay? Well, he starts by saying, ah, objects, you're, you're very religious, which is mm, depending on... You know, it's not really 
a compliment and objects of worship and ignorance, okay? He's not starting out by, by flattering them, is my point. And so this God I proclaim to you, and look what he says. Oh man, okay, here's the message. We don't have time, much time to talk about it, but here we go. The God who made the world. Notice where he starts. Where does he start? The God who made the world. Does he try to prove the existence of God? He assumes it. That's his starting point. Okay, we, we hear about contextualization. What he's gonna be doing here, and, and he's gonna quote um, some poets, some Greek philosopher poet types, right? He's gonna quote them here in a minute. And everyone says, see, that's the thing. You've got to speak in the language that the people can understand and, and use examples, and that's fine. It's true. But he's, he's putting all of, he's, he, he's couching his message to these Athenians who don't have the Old Testament scriptures like the Jews did. He's couching it in a context that applies to everyone. What's the context? God. The God who made the heavens and the earth. Creation. God who made the heavens and the earth. He says in Romans one that that creation itself is a revelation of God. God is always speaking that all men everywhere in all times and all places know the true God and even his law, as you see in Romans one, we don't have time to get into that, uh, by the world that God has made. So that's the context of everybody. <laughs> you could go anywhere in the face of the earth and start with this. You don't have to weasel around the edges and finally somehow kind of, oh, and by the way, you know, there's a God. <gasps> no, the God, the God, that's where he starts. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, right, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So he starts with God, the creation, and the nature of God. The existence of God, the creation of God, the nature of God. He doesn't, he's Lord. He doesn't live in temples. You don't have to feed him. He's not dependent upon your offerings. He's not localized. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's not a localized deity, right? Like all the gods of the nations. He made all men, made the world as Lord of everything. He made Adam and all the nations from Adam to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he's sovereign over all where people live, what nations exist, kingdoms rising and falling, all of that. He's sovereign over all of this. He's in control of this. That they would seek God. That's the point. He put everybody where he put them, including the boundaries of their habitation, the nations, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. This is Romans 1. This is the revelation that comes to all men everywhere from the world that God has made. that they might, perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and, and exist. 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we, quote, for we also are his children. He's quoting a line from a popular, you know, something they would have known. That's fine. That's great. That is not at all the, the uh, that's more of an illustration than a proof. You understand the difference? He's proclaiming the truth to them and saying, everybody knows this. Even your poets know this. Even Bob Dylan knows this. Or whatever, you know. Everybody knows this. This is, we're made in the image of God in God's world and we all know this. That's the problem. Now, being then the children of God, not the children of God in the sense of elect and regenerate and adopted and, you know, all of that, but created by God, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. You're not gold or silver or stone, so how can God be gold or silver or stone? That's the point. An image formed by the art and thought of man. If God made you, how can you make God? That's crazy. Therefore, having overlooked the times of what? Ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Not just the Jews, all people everywhere should repent. Turn away from that idolatry. Why? Because he is fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment. There's judgment coming. You should repent because judgment is coming. He is fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Creation, God, the God who made the, who made the world, creation, sin, all this idolatry, right? Judgment, redemption. That's a message that you can preach anywhere, everywhere, all the time. Doesn't depend on prior knowledge of the scriptures. But it all comes from the scriptures, doesn't it? Right? Paul would not, you know, Paul's not ashamed to stand on the authority of the scriptures and quote it even to people who have never had the scriptures before or don't acknowledge the scriptures. It's not that he has another standard for Gentiles or pagans, one standard for, for Jews, another for Gentiles. He's saying the exact same things. The nature of the proof is a little different, but it's the same, same facts. All right, now what happens? I've got to be done. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. All right, uh, these, these Greeks hate the body. Part of the philosophy of, of these Greeks is they hate the body. The body is a bad thing. The spirit is good, the body is bad. Now you're talking about the resurrection of the body? That's bad. So they sneer at him, right? But others said, we, will, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, so one of them, one of those academics, one of the philosophers, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, we gotta be done. So, well, let's just be done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for these words. 
help us, Lord, in in the midst of our town to um, boldly and, and with faith proclaim this very same message, even to pagan philosophers and academics. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.